Now the British are threatening to haul John Hancock over to London to stand trial for treason. So John Adams is going to defend him in court. Treason? Aye, trouble be a brewin', lass, Max growled. Just wait, Max. It's only going to get worse. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. By the way, as you listen to this episode from the audiobook The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, keep in mind you can download your very own copy of it by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you'll find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, epicorderofthe7.com. On today's episode, we'll bring you the electrifying Chapter 50 of The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key. Plus, on Jenny's corner, Jenny will tell us how she recharges her batteries. Wait, Miss Jenny, she runs on batteries? That would explain why she keeps going and going and going. I believe Madame calls it uh, coffee. I can relate. Uh, later, Nigel brings us shocking facts about lightning. It's brilliant. Ah, well, the lightning is, that is. Well, actually, though, my report is quite good as well. And as you can see, we'll all get a charge out of the antics of your three energetic hosts, Megawatt Max, Lightning Bolt Liz, and Nuclear Nigel. <laughs> uh, too much? I say, old boy, what do you take us for? World Federation wrestlers? Ooh, I like them wrestler lads. Oh, mon ami, I hate to burst your bubble, but that TV wrestling is not real. Have you watched them, lass? Slamming and throwing each other around? Indeed, it does require a great deal of athleticism. Oui, but they do not hurt each other. It is all theatrics and choreography. I'll pretend I weren't hearing that. Uh, but speaking of great athletes... We were? I. I got me letter from the doggy disc flying frisbee team tryouts. Ah, that's right. You're supposed to receive notice of your results in the pillar box, what? What? Uh, the pill. uh, the, uh, the postal box. Eh? In the mail? Oh, aye. Uh, in fact, I just brought it in from the mailbox. I will get a towel. <laughs> I say open it, old boy. Uh, let's have a look. Uh, I'm too nervous, Mousy. Uh, could you nibble it open, then? Uh, well, it shall be my pleasure, uh, doggy slobber notwithstanding. Uh, uh, ah, there you are. Uh, read it, Mosey. All right. <clears throat> uh, dear Max, uh, thank you for trying out. Uh, inform you that uh, uh, we won't have a place for you on the high-flying disc offensive squad. Uh, sorry, old chap. Uh, but there is more. Oh, Max, I am so sorry. Uh, what else does it say, Nigel? It don't matter. They don't want me. Case closed. Well, that isn't the whole message. Save it, Mousy. I don't have the talent. I can't jump the way them long-legged breeds do. We Scotties are built low to the ground and are meant to stay that way. You have no problem uh, jumping up on the couch. Uh, well, to be fair, that's not quite the same as catching a disc in your teeth at full throttle. We. Oui, but there is more in the letter. Aye, probably more fluff and stuff about not being good enough. Ha, who needs them? Why don't you just start the show then? 
I'll be in me room. I say, old boy, uh, come back here. Max, I, come I, back. I say, come back. Oh, he is just embarrassed. Uh, but where is he going? Well, he said he's going to his room, but he, he doesn't, doesn't have, have a room. room. Uh, well, then, just read the chapter, monsieur. Uh, I will go find him. Chapter 50. Threatening Skies and Seizing Liberty. Williamsburg, November 1766. For the entertainment of the curious will be exhibited a course of experiments in that entertaining branch of natural philosophy called electricity, to be accompanied with lectures on the nature and properties of the electric fire, by William Johnson. Advance tickets are available here at the coffee house, but the lectures and demonstrations are to be held at the courthouse on Monday and Tuesday, Patrick Henry remarked, holding the Virginia Gazette. He read aloud the advertisement for the upcoming demonstration on electricity and lightning. Those who desire to have their habitations effectually guarded from the fatal violence of one of the most awful powers of nature, with which this colony in particular has been often dreadfully visited, may learn from these lectures and experiments more of the nature and properties of lightning than has been known to mankind until within these few years. That sounds like a fascinating way to spend an evening after a long day in the assembly. Do you plan to attend, Patrick? Richard Henry Lee asked, setting down a steaming mug of coffee on their table in Charlton's coffee house. He adjusted the black silk handkerchief that he kept wrapped around the palm of his maimed right hand, leaving his thumb free. Richard Henry Lee was a Burgess from Westmoreland County. Tall, brilliant, well-educated, and four years older than Patrick, the sophisticated young man became fast friends with Patrick as soon as they met in Williamsburg for the newly elected assembly. Last time, Patrick Henry hardly had a friend in the house. This time, all that had changed. After 18 long months, Governor Farquhar had finally called the Burgesses back in session, but only after his hand was forced. The governor had written to London that, Virginians are so heated as to shut up all avenues of reason. The colonies reciprocally inflame each other, and where the fury will end I know not. He was much happier without the Burgesses around, but after the sudden death of Speaker John Robinson, the governor had no choice. The colony needed a new treasurer, and the House of Burgesses was responsible for electing one. Governor Farquhar had hoped that the cool old members of the House would regain power after Patrick Henry had taken the assembly by storm in the last session. But his hopes were dashed as new young faces showed up in Williamsburg after the elections across Virginia. Many of the old Burgesses who had opposed Patrick Henry's Stamp Act resolves were replaced by young representatives who joined those returning members who had been Patrick's most ardent supporters in the Stamp Act debates. Virginians not only celebrated Patrick Henry after his boldness with the Stamp Act resolves, but they elected Burgesses who would represent them in the same way. The makeup of the Virginia House of Burgesses had changed radically, with one-third of the delegates new to the Assembly for this session. Patrick Henry had quickly become the leader of the new force of power surging through the capital at the end of Duke of Gloucester Street. And Speaker Robinson the man who had shouted treason against Patrick Henry and then sneakily reversed Patrick's fifth resolution, was not only dead, 
but his memory would soon fall into disgrace and scandal. Peyton Randolph was elected new Speaker of the House, and at the suggestion of Richard Henry Lee and Patrick Henry, the role of treasurer was separated from the Speaker's chair. This move soon proved wiser than anyone could have imagined. Robert Carter Nicholas was elected treasurer, and Patrick Henry made a motion for a select committee to make a thorough report on the state of the treasury. They soon discovered that something wasn't right about the late Speaker Robinson's accounts. He had loaned 100,000 pounds of public money to friends, and his vast estate would soon be sold off to pay for it. Perhaps I will attend the lectures, Patrick replied, taking a sip of coffee. Now that I've built a house, I'd like to know how to protect it. He raised his eyebrows as he read more of the advertisement. Listen to this. As the knowledge of nature tends to enlarge the human mind and give us more exalted ideas of the God of nature, it is presumed that this course will prove to many an agreeable and rational entertainment. Isn't it amazing that man has found a key to unlock one of God's secrets of nature? Richard asked, taking a sip of coffee. Dr. Franklin's discovery has certainly taken the world by storm. Nigel preened his whiskers proudly as he listened in on their conversation. Hear, hear. It's utterly splendid to see the results of our kite-flying storm in Philadelphia shared here in Williamsburg. Yes, and Dr. Franklin himself has taken the world by storm, Patrick replied, putting down the paper. I'll never forget first reading about how he received praise from the King of France for his discovery. I was told that great things would come from it. Now Benjamin Franklin is an international celebrity both in France and England. A celebrity, an inventor, a printer, a postmaster, and now a colonial agent in London. "'Richard replied, shaking his head in wonder at the amazing man. "'I, for one, am glad to have Dr. Franklin representing colonial interests before Parliament, "'even though they would not listen to him about not passing the Stamp Act. "'Dr. Franklin was able to summon lightning, but not the common sense of Parliament.' "'He leaned in close, smiled, and pointed a finger at Patrick.' It took a freshman representative to summon patriotic lightning in the House of Burgesses to knock some sense into the mother country. Patrick took another sip of coffee and smiled humbly. Well, I am glad the Crown finally felt the heat and repealed the Stamp Act. I truly regret I was not present during your Stamp Act speech, Patrick, Richard said. Tell me, what gave you such confidence to assert your resolves? Patrick furrowed his brow and tightened his lips. I believed that a united sentiment and sound patriotism would carry us safely to our wished-for port. If people will not die or be free, it is of no consequence what sort of government they live under. Well, you, my new friend, are already seen here in Williamsburg as an awful power of nature yourself, with such bold new ideas— why, they've even installed a balcony in the house chamber for spectators to listen in on our sessions. <laughs> that should tell you the people are eager to come hear your ideas, Richard replied with a chuckle, pointing to Patrick. <laughs> to come hear you, Mr. Henry. Patrick twisted up his mouth. <laughs> come now, Richard, don't be absurd. 
That balcony was not installed on my account. Richard smiled and waved off his comment. Either way, the Roman patriots thought that good citizens should serve their country every seven years, and it is good to see young patriot citizens like you who have not only joined our ranks, but quickly become leaders. Most kind, Richard. I'm grateful for your support. Now to wait and see what Parliament will do next, Patrick replied. We defeated the Stamp Act, but the Declaratory Act is hanging over us like a dark cloud. It's only a matter of time before a gale sweeps over the colonies from Britain to strike us with another tax. Agreed, Richard answered. He smiled and tapped the Gazette. But just as Dr. Franklin found the key to protecting houses against lightning, we colonies have found the key to protecting our houses from the next storm by working together. And the noble ruler of the house will no doubt be the lightning rod that protects the house of Burgesses when Parliament strikes again, Nigel cheered to himself. London, June 29th, 1767. A torrential storm pelted the windows of the palace with fat raindrops. Al was sprawled out on a golden velvet cushion in a window box, fast asleep with drool running down his chin. He dreamed he was walking across a long banquet table spread with silver trays of bountiful food, sampling each and every delicacy. He lifted a piece of fish to his mouth and licked his chops when, boom! A loud clap of thunder rattled the windows, and Al's fur stood on end as he sat straight up, now wide awake. I'll put it back, he screamed. His heart was racing as he looked around the room, only to realize he had been dreaming. All he saw was King George and his headstrong Chancellor of the Exchequer, Charles Townsend, smiling and talking with great satisfaction. I wonder what cheeky Charles be up to now, Al said, studying the smug man in his forties standing behind the king, who was seated at the desk. Prime Minister William Pitt fell ill soon after he took charge of the government and was unable to attend Parliament sessions. Charles Townsend quickly moved in to fill the void of power in the House of Commons. He had been plotting something secretly for months, ever since Great Britain's demeaning repeal of the Stamp Act. Charles Townsend lifted his chin proudly and wore a smug expression as King George pressed the great royal seal into a glob of hot wax. Excellent, Your Majesty. With this seal of approval, the colonies will once more be put in their place. Indeed, right under my heel, King George answered, punctuating each word with a smile as he looked over the parchment. He smacked the desk happily with the palm of his hand and rose from his seat. Well done, Townsend. I have great faith that your Townsend acts will make the Americans once more treat the crown with respect. I know some in Parliament think I've been in a state of humiliation since the Stamp Act was repealed. I'm glad you stepped in to oversee things in the House of Commons while Pitt is away from his post. This calls for a toast. Al's eyes lit up with joy to see the servants bringing in trays of refreshments. No, this calls for investigating. 
the plump kitty jumped off the window seat and made his way over to stand under the men. Towson bowed, feigning humility, then took a glass from the tray. Thank you, your majesty. I am delighted you approve of the Townsend Acts. With several measures, we will regain control of the colonies and raise money. Although I had to keep my plans secret from the cabinet until I was ready to present them to Parliament, I look forward to this news finally reaching the colonies. Boston will be the first city to hear of the new customs duties the colonies will need to pay in order to obtain British glass, lead, paint, paper, and, of course, tea. The Americans complained about internal versus external taxes, so we'll take their money with a phrase they can more easily handle, regulating commerce. The distinction is ridiculous in the opinion of everybody except the Americans. What, what? Ridiculous, the king agreed. He held up his clenched fists. Those American smugglers will feel the grip of the new American Board of Customs Commissioners when they enforce the customs duties once and for all. Boston is the perfect place for their headquarters. They will be able to stay right on top of those hot-headed Americans. There will be no more cozy accommodations in colonial seaports. King George smiled and lifted his glass. There is a reason you are called the cleverest fellow in England. Townsend lifted his glass. Most magnanimous of you, my liege, there are those who have their doubts, like Edmund Burke. You will not see a shilling from America, he shouted, but I intend to prove him wrong. We'll keep the colonial governors loyal by taking the power of the purse away from the colonial assemblies to pay them. And for those hot-headed troublemakers who choose to defy the Townsend Acts, we'll haul them away to stand trial outside the colonies. And if we must, there is an old pre-colonial law from the time of King Henry VIII we can dust off and apply to the colonies. If malcontents like that Patrick Henry, who spoke out against the Stamp Act, try to defy us again, we'll seize them and bring them to England for trial, and we'll try them for treason. Brilliant, King George cheered, lifting a tasty hors d'oeuvre from the silver tray. As he took a bite, a clap of thunder and a flash of lightning caused him to jump, sending part of the delicacy to the floor. He looked down to see Al sitting there, not making a move to retrieve it. What, what, Leo, I'm surprised at you. This is a day for British lions to celebrate. Aren't you going to snatch up that morsel? What, what? I just lost me appetite for your British goodies. That's what. Al meowed in reply, flattening his ears in disgust over what he had heard the men say. He turned up his nose and walked out of the room. Just wait till the colonies lose theirs. Boston, June 10th, 1768. Click, 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 went Max's toenails as he trotted along a darkened cobblestone alley that led to Boston Harbor. The Scotty kept his ears up and his eyes open, following the muffled sound of angry voices. Sounds like trouble, he muttered under his breath but at least they be words I can make out instead of them French words, then. 
He had just said farewell to Kate in Chevaniac and traveled through the Iamosphere to reach Boston. Clary was to meet him there. Suddenly, Max smelled something burning and saw the sky growing brighter up ahead. He turned a corner, and there before him was an angry mob setting fire to a boat in Boston Harbor. Their torches were raised high in the air, and they cursed the customs officer as they cheered the destruction of his boat. Max furrowed his brow and watched a mob of 500 people at the water's edge throwing stones they had torn from the very streets they walked to reach the wharf. In the distance, a 50-gun British man-of-war, the Romney, towed a beautiful sailing sloop named Liberty out of the range of the angry mob. Welcome to Boston, where Liberty has been seized, came a voice next to him. Max looked up to see a young man dressed in brown breeches, an open-collared white shirt with rolled-up sleeves, and a blue-knit cap. Sweat dripped down his cheeks, and in his hand he gripped a stone. Clary, have you been throwing stones with the rest of the mob? Clary plopped down on the curb next to Max. Not throwing stones, but catching them, Max. She held up the stone. This one almost hit a young ten-year-old boy in the head. His name is Christopher Sider, and he got caught up in the street mob. I've tried my best to protect the children out here tonight, but I can't be everywhere at once. I told him to hurry back home, but I fear he won't stay there long. Well, I'm here now to help you, lass. Tell me what in the name of Pete all this Boston hullabaloo be about, Max inquired with his tail up, poised for action. I've been dealing with wolf beasties, so I don't know what's happening here in Boston. Clarie put her hand on Max's wiry black fur. I'm glad you're here, Max. You and Kate did an excellent job protecting the young Marquis de Lafayette. Now that he's attending school in Paris, he's safe for the time being. Kate will enjoy her time there. She wiped her forehead with the back of her arm. What you're seeing is the response to the Townsend Acts passed by Parliament last year. The Acts involve more taxes on the colonies for British goods, tough enforcement of customs duties on ships bringing imports, enforcement of quartering troops, and so on. Al was in the room when King George put his royal seal on the document that led to this. She pointed to the mayhem and shook her head. So, the king just couldn't leave the colonies well enough alone, Max huffed. Whose great idea were this? Charles Townsend. But he suddenly died before his acts could even take effect, Clarie answered. Once more, King George's government is a mess. Pitt is too sick to run Parliament, and do-nothing Rockingham is trying to fill in since Townsend died. Now the inept Lord Hillsborough has been made Secretary of State for Colonial Affairs, but is quickly making things worse by sending threatening letters back to the protesting colonies. When word of the Townsend Acts reached Massachusetts, their legislature sent protests to London saying they weren't fooled by Townsend's duties, they know they are taxes, and claim they are unconstitutional. James Otis, Samuel Adams, John Hancock, and the other leaders in the Sons of Liberty have called for the colony to stop importing British goods, and they have once more taken to the streets to protest. She pointed to the ships in the harbor. That sloop out there named Liberty 
belongs to John Hancock, and it was seized by that British warship after Hancock refused to report and pay the full customs duties for the goods he brought here from overseas. Now the British are threatening to haul John Hancock over to London to stand trial for treason. So John Adams is going to defend him in court. Treason? Aye, trouble be a brewin', lass, Max growled. Just wait, Max. It's only going to get worse, Clarie cautioned him. The Massachusetts Assembly petitioned the king to repeal the Townsend duties, and Samuel Adams sent a circular letter to the other colonial assemblies, asking them to join Massachusetts' efforts. Britain ordered the Massachusetts Assembly to recall the letter. When they refused, Governor Bernard dissolved them. The other colonial assemblies have been instructed to ignore the circular letter or be dissolved as well. Meanwhile, Governor Bernard has panicked and written to London that Boston is in open rebellion. He's requested that British troops be brought here to Boston. You mean them lobsterbacks will be roaming the streets with muskets while all these angry people be throwing stones and burning ships? Max asked. He shook his head as another cheer arose from the crowd as the customs official's ship burst into flames. If the colonies don't nip this Townsend mess in the bud like they did with the Stamp Act, the revolution could be here sooner than they think. Clarie nodded. Massachusetts started the protests against the Townsend Acts, but it will be again up to Virginia to lead the charge to make the British lion back down. Well, I hope Patrick Henry and the boys get to work soon, Max said somberly. Clarie frowned as Christopher Sider went running by, laughing with a group of boys. Yes, before innocent blood is spilled. I say, lightning is flashing over the king's palace, and sparks are flying in Boston. And Max is sulking in his own little cloud. Seems we're headed for a perfect storm. And we need to give it a rest, and become refreshed. <laughs> I say, jolly goodness. Ah, so a trip to Jenny's corner seems to be just the ticket. Uh, bonjour, Miss Jenny. Hey, Liz. I say, Miss Jenny, it seems we need a change of pace from all the gloomy, stormy conditions that prevail here in the studio. Uh, so tell us, then, when you need a change of pace, how do you relax and how do you recharge your batteries, uh, so to speak? Water, water everywhere. Good heavens, I hope this doesn't involve more stormy weather. There's one reason why I loved using that poem when I wrote The Ark, the Reed, and the Fire Cloud, because I love water. I have loved water since I was a kid growing up in Norfolk, Virginia, where I was surrounded by water. Across the street that I could see from my bedroom window was, of course, the Lafayette River. But we had a sailboat, and we lived on our sailboat for a month every summer on Chesapeake Bay, going up the waterway and uh, up the Chesapeake or down the intercoastal to the Keys. But every Saturday, our family would go sailing, and there was just something about the freedom of getting out there on a sailboat with the sails full and the halyards clanking against the mask, and just that sea breeze in my face that just, oh, it was just such a rush for me. And so ever since then, water has just been kind of the way where I 
ah, I let down and I kind of recharge my batteries. And I live in Atlanta, so I am not near salt water anymore. When I need a big recharge, I know I got to get to the coast. <laughs> I got to get to salt water. But in the meantime, God has been so good to me to allow me to live across the road overlooking the Chattahoochee River in North Atlanta. And so I take Jock and we go down there walking many times if I just need to clear my head or I just need to get out of the writing cave. We go for a walk down by the river and then I'll sit on the rocks. And it is there's something about moving water that just really restores my soul. You know, in 23rd Psalm, David wrote, he leads me beside still waters. And of course, that's because sheep wouldn't drink in moving waters. But I guess the non-sheep in me <laughs> likes moving water. And then, of course, we are blessed to have a family uh, lake house at Lake Burton in the North Georgia mountains. And so I got to get up there and I get out on my paddleboard and I'll paddle all over that lake. And I just love to be one with the water. And I love to try to find bald eagles, of course, to look for Cato flying around out there. So really, anything to do with water restores my soul. Merci, Miss Jenny. I am so glad your joy of water does not come from the raging storm clouds. Eh? Aye, that's for sure. Max, are you feeling better? No. Oh, brother, more storm clouds. But those storm clouds do serve a purpose, no? Indeed, Benjamin Franklin made great use of the storm clouds, huh? And who would better know that than Nigel? And so it is time for another edition of Nigel's News Nuggets. Greetings, Nigel P. Monaco here with today's News Nuggets brought to you by Lightning. <laughs> the maker's ultimate uh, flashlight, what? <laughs> It is rather commendable, and dare I say heroic, when you consider Benjamin Franklin's attempts to harness the power he perceived there to be in lightning. For if old Ben fully knew what he was up against, it uh, may have, understandably, scared him off. I shall cite a few fun facts about lightning to uh, illustrate my point. It's quite obvious to us that the lightning bolts exhibit amazing flashes of power, but how much power? Well, according to Kids Discover, your average run-of-the-mill lightning bolt delivers roughly 250 kilowatt-hours of energy. To give you some perspective, that amount of energy would power our homes for several days, or power an electric car for about 800 miles. Or consider this, that one lightning bolt could bake roughly 100 batches of brownies, uh, when baked for 50 minutes at 325 degrees, in a lightly greased 9x13 pan. Ah, uh, he has given this much thought, no? Hey, a wee bit too much, eh? Or let's take cookies, or as we British call them, biscuits. A sheet of one dozen cookies, uh, biscuits, uh, baked for 10 minutes at 350 degrees. Or until lightly browned at the edges. <laughs> right, Liz. Uh, that single lightning bolt could bake roughly 6,000 cookies. Or, or biscuits. biscuits. Uh, right. However, given that the lightning bolt may only last for a split second or so... <laughs> Flash in the pan, then, huh? <laughs> the brownie pan. <laughs> <laughs> Three bien, Matt. <clears throat> it also, then, must generate heat. Heat of over 50,000 degrees Fahrenheit, or a mere 28,000 degrees Celsius, which would no doubt burn those cookies beyond recognition. Simply put, until we can truly capture this lightning in a bottle, it'll burn our biscuits. 
Uh, quiet. Uh, for Nigel's News Nuggets, I'm Nigel P. Monaco in the newsroom. Oh, three me and Nigel. Uh, wasn't that good, Max? <sighs> Whatever. All right. Sit down, mon ami. I don't want to. I said sit down. Fine. You don't have to be getting all grumpy about it. Sometimes we get bad news, mon ami. Ah, tell me something I don't know. And without hearing the whole story... I heard the whole story. I were listening to the announcer lad in me room. Uh, not that story. And you do not have a room. Uh, as I was saying, we can hear a bit of disappointing news, and rather than hear the whole story, we are inclined to just uh, jump to conclusions. How can I jump to conclusions? Remember, I can't jump very well at all. And when we jump to conclusions, we close our ears and close our minds to what could be a blessing in disguise. Huh. Miss Jenny talked about that last time, blessings in disguise. Oui, they are called that because they do not look or feel like a blessing. I say, old boy, uh, she's quite right there. Uh, let me ask you, if your uh, uh, wee little legs are not designed for high-flying disc catching, why would you even want to compete against those who excel at it? I wouldn't, and I'm not. If you did, and you were constantly being defeated, you would feel even worse. Do you be going somewhere with this? If not, I'll be in me room. You, you don't, don't have, have a room. room. What you do have is this letter. <sighs> to remind me. Which you did not fully read. Uh, Nigel, would you do the honors? Aha, gladly. <clears throat> uh, we don't have a place for you on the high-flying disc offensive squad. However... With your speed and tenacity and your fetching ability, you are just what we are looking for on our ground defense. I say, old boy, they want you to be a defender. A defender? We, oui, Maximilian Braveheart the Bruce, you are, by your very nature, a defender, no? Indeed, and when those high-flying dogs miss catching the disc, they can be right there fetching it up off the ground and keeping the other team away. And that is what you are good at, mon ami? Aye. So the maker give me me wee little legs for being close to the ground, able to defend against the opposing beasties. <laughs> Brilliant. I could not have said that better myself. You see, the maker does not make mistakes. He has designed each of us to be a tad bit different from anyone else, and he has equipped us to use what we do have to show off what he is doing with us. Hi, Harry, you both made your points then. So I'll go out, and I'll just be the best ground defender I can be. Magnifique, Max, that is the spirit. <laughs> I guess that makes me an athlete. Indeed, you are truly an athlete, or a jock. A jock? We athletes are sometimes referred to as jocks. Hmm, jock. I kinda like that name. Well, I must go get ready then. I'll be in me room. You, you don't, don't have, have a room. room. Huh, then where is he going? I haven't the foggiest. Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. 
And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandi! A bientôt, mes amis! Huzzah! And ta-ta! And always remember, you are loved and you are able.